Hi there, folks, and welcome back to the On Being Christian Podcast. This is podcast number 10, and the On Being Christian Podcast is a ministry of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah. My name's Nolan Ruby. I'll be your host. I'm also the pastor of Wasatch Front Baptist Church, and it is, like I said, a pleasure for us that you chose to listen today. I hope you have a a wonderful start to the new year kind of lined up. It's been very busy for us here. Um, Lots of opportunities that we, of course, thank the Lord for uh, concerning chances to be a witness for the cause of Christ and so on. Um, I'd like to talk to you today, if you don't mind, about the idea of excuses. The concept of it is one that is very readily accepted in the society that you and I live in, Um, excuses being anything that I would so like it to be. We often have excuses for why we are what we shouldn't be or why we aren't what we should be. But the Bible does have a couple things to say about this concept, and that's what this podcast is all about. On Being Christian is a podcast that aims at removing the title Christian from where it has become nothing more than a moniker, something that I can just attach to myself without any required action, move it away from that status of a noun back into the status of a verb something that I do with my life. It's a manner in which I act. In other words, the most effective form of being Christian is when other people understand you to be Christian by what you say, or excuse me, by what you do, not just what you say. And so this uh, this afternoon, or whenever you're listening to this, I'm looking out over the Wasatch here. We've got some snow falling uh, just a beautiful vision, but I'd like to talk to you about the idea of excuses. If you if you have your Bible, I'm going to be in Romans chapter 1, if you'd like to know the reference of this. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read 18 through 21, and then I'm going to drop down to verse 28 and read into chapter 2, verse 1. So that's kind of where we are. But if I start in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, the Bible says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and the Godhead." so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. If I jump down to verse 28, and I'll read through the end of the chapter as well as the first verse of chapter 2, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, 
Covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable and merciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. And it goes on. And so we're going to talk about this idea from the context of Romans chapter 1 and the first verse of Romans chapter 2 of an excuse and being without an excuse, as the Bible says. Let's define some terms, if you don't mind, and we'll get rolling right away. The word excuse, and I use uh, specifically for for this podcast, I used definitions from the Oxford English Dictionary. It's the oldest dictionary that I could find. It's a little bit difficult to read. It's like a microfiche-type print. But I pulled the definition of the word excuse from that dictionary, and it says that it's a word meaning to offer or serve as an explanation for. It's to offer an apology, which is from the word apologia, or to seek to extenuate or remove blame, excuse me, blame off of me. Um, in other words, it's through, through shifting of reasoning, the, the goal of an excuse is to maintain perceived innocence. Now, what I'd like you to focus on for the remainder of this is this concept of the truth from the perspective of the Bible that we are, in fact, without excuse. We have no excuses to offer. I'm going to show you from the context of the Word of God concerning where I just read three things why the Bible says we are not um, excuse me, we are without excuse. We don't have an excuse available to us. The first thing I want to show you is that we are without excuse because we have not retained God by choice. If you look at verse 28 in Romans chapter 1, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. Then it goes on to describe those things which are done from the perspective of a hard heart or a reprobate mind. But the thing I want to draw your attention to is where it says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. In other words, it's not because they didn't know what was right and wrong. It was because they chose not to do what was right, knowing what they were doing and the fact that it was wrong. And that reason is the first reason that we are without excuse. The word retain there is a word that means to restrain, to hold back. It it means uh, to keep in custody, or like the idea of keeping it attached to you. So we are without excuse because we, by choice, have, have made the conscious decision to not hold God in our thoughts to not retain the Word of God or the commandments of God or the righteousness um, which is available by a good conscience, we've chosen to not live by that, to reject that, to go a, a completely opposite direction of that. And though it is what some might call ignorance, the Bible refers to it as willing ignorance. Willing ignorance. A couple verses on this if you want. Proverbs chapter 3, 11 through 23 
gives us an incredible perspective of this. If I go down and uh, Proverbs chapter 3, if I start in verse 11, the Bible says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it, talking about wisdom and understanding, is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She, talking about wisdom and understanding, is more precious than rubies, and all the things that cannot that excuse me, all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth her. You find that word retain there. Happy is every one who by choice retains wisdom and knowledge. And according to this section of Scripture, those two things are specifically products of a life lived in the pursuit of the truth of the gospel. Verse 19, the Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in the way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble." So you have some incredible verses here concerning the value of retaining God in your knowledge. It's a life a life lived with God being retained in knowledge, according to what we just read, is a happy life, a successful life, a productive life. If you go to Proverbs chapter 4, the first four verses, it says, Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to the knowledge, uh, and attend to no knowledge and understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. So every single one of the things that we have read so far very clearly says that it is our responsibility to retain the knowledge of God. And we are without excuse because we've chosen not to. Now, I don't want to get too political on this or even even a little bit political, but if you look at the country that we live in, this is very clear. We as a country are rapidly choosing to not retain the truth of the doctrine of the Word of God, and the product of that 100% of the time will always result in failure. Always. And when we fail, we won't have an excuse, because what we're doing, we're doing knowingly. We're, we're, we're choosing to not retain God in our knowledge. As a country right now, if you look at verse 20 through 27 of Proverbs chapter 4, it says, "'My son, attend to my words, incline thy ear unto my sayings.'" Let them not depart from thine eyes, keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto the, those that find them, and health to all their flesh. 
Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth, a perverse and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look eyelids, excuse me, look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. So quite a lot in the Bible about the concept of our responsibility to retain God in our knowledge. And that starts with retaining God's Word in our knowledge. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord makes Himself manifest through preaching. So if I'm claiming to be a Christian, and at the same time not deciding or attending any church with any regularity, not subjecting myself to the preaching of God's Word, then can that not be interpreted as me choosing to not retain God in my knowledge? specifically because the Bible says God makes himself manifest through preaching. And so if I remove myself from preaching, is that not the same thing as willingly choosing to not retain God in my knowledge? There's three things I want you to notice from where we have read so far. Retaining is not a passive act. It is a very aggressive act, an aggressive, forward-moving decision. There was a saying in the Marine Corps when I served, uh, the skill you don't use is the skill you lose. To retain something is an aggressive act. It's a decisive act. It's a forward momentum act. Nothing is retained comfortably. It must be pursued continuously in order for it to, to stay. The second thing that we notice from these verses is retaining is not a private affair, but a public matter, public and bold. Uh, I get uh, not tired, but I get frustrated, I guess that would be fair, with Christian uh, Christianity or Christians who have decided to live their Christianity privately. Folks, that's not how Christianity is lived. It's, it's just not. If you look through the pages of the Bible— those who were effective for the cause of Christ were Christians publicly. Publicly. You would understand this if you have a husband or a spouse or a wife. You don't love them without, every, without anybody else knowing about it. If you're going to love them properly, then other people are going to know where you stand. And why should the way that we love the Lord require anything less from us? So to retain the, the, the commandments of the Lord, to retain God in our knowledge, folks, it's done publicly. It's done by the way you choose to live your, your life, not by the words you choose to say. The third thing that we see is that retaining is not a temporary decision, but rather an eternal, continuing decision. It must be held to as all else fails. Retain. Sometimes I get this idea, we retain for a certain amount of time, and then we think that, well, I retain that for five years, seven years, eight years, ten years, twenty years, um, and now I'm, I've moved past that. I've retained it for long enough. I'm going to move on and do something different. And the Bible says that the Christian life is lived in the retaining of God's knowledge until the very end. The pastor who trained me 
used to say that a man must be equal to the task until the task is finished. And for that reason, for the Bible reasons that the Word of God just laid out in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Romans, we understand very clearly we are going to be without excuse. When we stand before God and He asks us very specifically what we did with what He gave us, and by the way, the Bible says that God gave us His only begotten Son, what will we say? What have you done for the cause of Christ? And if you've done nothing for the cause of Christ, are you living Christianity or just claiming it? And so number one, we are without excuse because we have not retained God by choice. Ezra chapter 8, verse 22, you'll find the Bible says this, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. I think that makes it pretty clear. Let's look at the second thing from our context in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 and verse 28. The Bible says in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. The second thing I want to show you from this context is why we are without excuse. Uh, Why we are without excuse? Because we have chosen our imagination over his knowledge. So number one, because we have not retained God by choice— And number two, because we have chosen our imagination over his knowledge. Verse 21 says, became vain in their imaginations. That word imaginations is a word that means the act, excuse me, the act of forming a, a mental concept of what is not actually present. <laughs> wow. The act of forming a mental concept of which a reality is not actually present. Folks, words still mean things. And this word, imagination, makes very clear where we as a society have leaned into real hard. We live in a world of imagination. It's actually a real world that will have real consequences, but we have, for whatever reason, accepted, and even in our our own selves, sometimes participated in imagining that those real-world consequences aren't going to come. That word goes on to mean the result of this process, this process of imagining something which is not actually in reality existent, is a mental image or concept which by implication does not correspond to the reality of what is. Hence the term vain imaginations, vain meaning empty, the power of the mind to form subjective pictures based off of fiction. This is what the word imaginations mean, and if you look at that verse 21, it says, uh, why why are we without excuse? Because... That when, and by the way, that's how verse 20 ends. So they are without excuse, 
Verse 21 starts off, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so we have we are going to be without excuse because we've knowingly not retained God in our knowledge, and we've given ourselves over to our own subjective imaginations. And maybe you say, well, I've not done that. Yes, but maybe you've become accepting of it. You say, no, I have not. I've not become accepting of vain imaginations. Really? So if I were to ask you <clears throat> how much time you spend in front of a screen being entertained by stories that aren't real, you would say what? Because that's the exact thing that this section of Scripture is painting a picture of. Vain imaginations. They're empty. They're not real. And, and this has moved itself into our world in such a way where we're being forced to use nouns and terminology to describe people in a way that's not true because they have decided that they are okay living in something that's not true. This idea of um, the, the pronoun thing that we're going through, where someone says, my name is and my pronouns are. Folks, listen, pronouns are not subjective terms. They are objective terms. They have meanings based off of what is. Their meanings are not open to subjective, imaginative um, pictures. They just, they just have meaning. They just are what they are. You're not entitled to your pronouns as you would describe them any more than I'm entitled to my own adjectives. I don't get to make those up. They just are what they are. And that's the world that the Bible says um, should be lived in, the objective world, truth, reality. We're not doing that. Because we've given ourselves over to this imagination, the forming of a mental concept based off what is actually not present. And then the word knowledge is used in verse 28, where it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Knowledge is a word that means, um, well, the early use of the word is a, is a word for acknowledgement. It's the confession or recognition of a real position, an unmovable objective truth. It's the recognizing of fact. It's a word that shows intimacy in that truth shows what you are not. In other words, the word knowledge has even changed in its own definition. But the the word as it was originally designed to mean something meant knowledge is the gaining of what is. In other words, there is no knowledge without acknowledging objective reality. One plus one is two. Not because I've decided that, but because I've acknowledged that that's exactly what it is. It's not changeable. It is. It's just what is. This concept of objective truth has escaped us, but that's, that's where knowledge comes from. Knowledge comes from recognizing what is, not making up an imaginative reality of what is not. That's imagination. And there's a difference between imagination and knowledge. And this is found all throughout the Bible as well. If I, if I can show you a couple of them, and I know we're going to Proverbs, but there's a lot that 
is said in Proverbs about this concept. Proverbs chapter 6, and it starts off in verse 16, and I'll read down through verse 19. The Bible says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in the running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. I want to focus you in on verse uh, 18, where it says, A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Wicked. The Bible says, when I, through a, a fallen sinful nature, when I choose to live by the imagination of my own fallen mind, as opposed to living by the objective reality and acknowledgement of the truth of God, according to this verse, the Bible says the Lord hates these things. He doesn't hate people. He hates the sin that is committed. There's a big difference there. I tell the folks here at Wasatch Front Baptist Church all the time that sin in itself cannot be forgiven. The sinner can, but sin had to be paid for, and Jesus Christ is the one who paid for sin. I can be forgiven of my sin, not because sin can be forgiven, but because the sinner can be forgiven. I, as the sinner, can be forgiven because my sin was paid for, but sin must be paid for. That's the cost of the righteousness of God. He is truly, perfectly righteous, and sin cannot exist in his presence. But he is also perfectly love, which is why he gave us his only begotten Son, God with us, Emmanuel, to live on this earth perfectly, born outside of the bloodline of man, and to sustain his perfection for 33 and a half years while he walked this earth and then give up what was rightfully his, which was an inheritance with God the Father, heaven eternal. He gave that up and instead took my sin upon himself and paid the price for sin. That's why I as the sinner can be forgiven. That's objective reality. If I imagine something different, my imagination doesn't bring things into reality. It doesn't matter, folks, how many green screens and still cameras you have. There are limits on humans. That's just the way it is. There's a couple of verses in Jeremiah chapter 3, 13 through 17 is the context, but I'll just read you a part of verse 13 and then a part of verse 17. The Bible says in, in Jeremiah 3, 13, only acknowledge thine iniquity. In other words, if I'm going to have forgiveness from God, the first thing that I need to do is acknowledge my own iniquity. That doesn't mean I'm I'm making something up. I'm I, I'm I'm just I'm just acknowledging that in comparison to God, in comparison to Christ, I fall short. I'm lacking. Verse 17 says, Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. And that's exactly where our society as a whole has, uh, we are rapidly moving towards accepting that. But the Bible says that neither shall they walk anymore. We shouldn't walk after the imagination, after the unreal, the mental concepts based off of things that aren't actually present. That's what the word imagination means. 
we're living our lives in fantasy as a country to say things that are clearly biologically, scientifically impossible, and then to write laws about them and enforce concepts and regulations because of them is idiotic. Now, folks, it's idiotic. There are scientific, biological restrictions and realities upon humans. You can attach whatever you want to your body. You can cut off whatever you want. That doesn't change a thing. That's just the reality of what is. Truth still matters, and it shouldn't be offensive to speak it. And so we have, number one, the reason that we are without excuse is because we have not retained God by choice. We've chosen to not listen to God. Number two, we are without excuse because we have chosen our own imaginations over his knowledge. There's three things that we have seen from the scriptures that we have read so far concerning this second point. I want to share those with you very quickly. Number one, acknowledging is understanding what you are as well as what you are not. Very simple. Acknowledging is understanding objectively what you are as well as what you are not. Anything short of that or anything in addition to that is not knowledge, it's imagination. And we don't live in imagination effectively. Number two, knowledge and understanding require guidance, which is its own issue because we are rapidly uh, advancing into a society that rejects all forms of guidance. There's this concept out, I think it was a presidential slogan for a while for uh, one of the... um, one of the Democratic nominees, and the slogan was, or the concept is, live your truth, as if your truth, quote-unquote, could be different from what actual truth is. In fact, in uh, Psychology 101, one of the first things that they teach you is truth is relative, and that is incorrect. Truth is not relative. Your perspective on the truth might have allowed you to see something that somebody else didn't see or might have restricted your vision from seeing the entire picture, but just because you didn't see everything there doesn't mean what you didn't see magically doesn't exist. Truth is 100%. It's not relative. It's self-existent. It just is. And by uh, knowledge and understanding, that requires guidance. In other words, in order for me to live according to the doctrines of the Word of God, I'm going to have to expose myself to the guidance and doctrines of the Word of God and then do them. That's what being a Christian is. But when we live in a, a society that makes it offensive to correct someone, where everybody can be exactly what they have decided they are, nobody's uh, been... Uh, coached or guided or prompted or taught to become more. They're being told you're good just the way you are. No, you can be accepted the way you are, but that doesn't mean that's all you should ever be. Folks, I have three children, and at one point one of them wanted to be a horse. I think one of them was absolutely convinced he was Buzz Lightyear. That that imaginative play is harmless until it starts causing harm. 
at some point, a father, a mother, someone who loves them, someone who guides them, needs to gently usher them into the reality of life. Otherwise, you have someone who never grows up. And as fun as that might be for the Peter Pan lovers of the world, in the real world, um, we do have to grow up. We do have to become more than what a child is. But we're living in a society that's rapidly saying children are just fine. No need to become more than what you are. And that's why we have just a, a vast expansion of oversized children throwing oversized temper tantrums. The third thing I want you to see from the verses that we've already seen here is imagination requires ignorance. Listen, there's a lot of things that I don't know, and I can imagine stories about them. I can imagine realities about them. But once I understand the truth, then the imagination is to stop, and I am to live in the reality of the truth. There's a, a concept that comes to mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to go over there real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe the verses 3 through 6, the Bible says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of God. Of Christ. Verse 6 says, And having in a readiness to revenge all uh, disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I want you to notice there, verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. So I need to understand, I do have imaginations, and according to the Bible, my responsibility is to cast down imaginations that stand against the acknowledgement or the knowledge of what is, of what is truth, of what is God. And so number one, we are without excuse because we have not retained God by choice. Number two, we are without excuse because we've chosen our imagination over knowledge. And thirdly, and lastly, number three, we are without excuse because we have gone first after pleasure— and it rejected the truth. We're, we're without excuse because we've pursued pleasure. We've gone first after pleasure and rejected the truth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 32, the Bible says, "...who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same," in other words, they do everything from verse 28 to 30, to 31, all those horrible things that were listed, they not only do they do them, but they have pleasure in them that do them. And then verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. You are inexcusable. Why? Because not only do you do these things, not only do we as a society do these things, but maybe the worst, the, the, the more severe problem is we accept, we take pleasure in those that do them. You say, I don't do that. Do you know why our movie industry and our entertainment industry has become more and more and more degradating and filthy? Because we pay for it. That's exactly the answer. We do take pleasure in 
that filth. And that's why it's grown and become more and more and more and more confrontational towards God. The word pleasure here is a word that means uh, the condition of consciousness or the sensation induced by the enjoyment or anticipation of what is felt or viewed as good or desirable. And if you were to take as a society today, maybe yourself, maybe your own mind, the things which you would uh, anticipate and view with joy and favor and desire are becoming increasingly more things that the Bible says aren't good. And so we are without excuse uh, knowing the judgment of God. In other words, we, we're not ignorant about this. We know what the Bible says. Our conscience is against these things. Not only do we do them, but we have pleasure in them that do them. For this reason, the Bible says we are without excuse. Absolutely without excuse. Again, back to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs has a lot to say on these. and There's a lot of Bible on a lot of this, folks. Um, I'm just kind of touching the fringes of some of these points. Proverbs chapter 21, and I think it's verse 17, if I'm correct. Proverbs 21, 17, I got to get there. The Bible says, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. So the love of pleasure results in poverty. If you go to Isaiah chapter 21 and verse 4, Isaiah 21 and verse 4, the Bible has more to say about this concept. Verse 4 there, it says, My heart panted fearfulness, affrighted me. My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath turned into fear unto me. The night of my pleasure turned into fear. I used to have someone who told me, you can never, you, you can always choose the sin, but you can never choose the payment. You can always choose the sin, but you can never choose the payment. Uh, Isaiah chapter 47, the first 15 verses, gives a very, very particular picture of um, sin. Sin chosen over the knowledge of God. This is in consideration of Babylon and how degradant their pleasure. Verse 8 says, Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasure, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. And it goes on to say all these things that pleasure tells you, and it ends with the reality that it doesn't work. It all becomes nothing. It all comes crashing down. It all fails, and the Bible's full of this. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, the Bible lays out a very clear picture here. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, concerning pleasure, the Bible says, But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. 2 Timothy 3.4, you'll find the same kind of concept. 2 Timothy 3.4, the Bible says, Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And that's where we are today, folks. As a society, vastly speaking, we are in constant pursuit of pleasure. 
constant pursuit of comfort. We are constantly pursuing leisureness, and we've rejected God to get it. And the Bible says the unavoidable, unquestionable outcome of such choices is and always has been and always will be resulting in total and complete failure. There's three things I want you to look at based off this third point and the scriptures that we've already read. Number one, pleasure's payment is infinitely more thorough than pleasure's joy. In other words, what you'll give for the pursuit of pleasure will be much more than you get concerning the pursuit of pleasure. It will take your life. And you will be without excuse at the end of it. Number two, pleasure's payment is far more public than private. Far more public than private. We sometimes think, well, I did all these things in private. No one can see me. I used to be in the Marine Corps and I was served. I served in a country one time. It was a Muslim country. And they told me there that this particular country was a black hole and that Allah could not see it which was interesting to me that they were ascribing limitations to their own deity. But what made what, what made it even more interesting to me was because of the fact that Allah could not see it, this place was an absolute cesspool. They lived in complete open disregard of everything that they said they believed in any other place, specifically because their God could not see them. In other words, um, their God was not big enough to be their, to be the God of all places. He was not big enough to control their habits in all places. And when he couldn't see, they had nothing within themselves that would restrain the absolute degradation of human nature. I wonder if they understood how little their concept of God, or how little that made their God. You have a God who's restricted because of a geographical place on earth, and he can't see the degradation that you're doing. And because he can't see it, there's no judgment for it. Folks, that's ignorance, and there's no excuse for living that way. The third thing is, though you seek to be served by pleasure, it is you who, in the end, becomes the servant of pleasure. It ne- no one ever advances anything through leisure. I used to be a power lifter. I still do a little bit of that every once in a while. I remember being at the gym one day. And I was with my brother, and this guy came over, and um, it took me a minute to get what he was asking me. But what he was saying was, hey, you know, he started asking me and my brother, are you guys using? You know, what, what, can, what are you using, and can I get some? And I didn't understand what he meant, but what he meant was, are we using um, some kind of uh, advanced uh, you know, steroids or, or performance-enhancing substances or whatever? And um, when I understood what he was asking, of course, I'd, I've never done anything like that. I've not used anything like that. I said, okay, I got the secret for you. I said, here, here it is. I, I pointed over to a wall, and on the wall was a, a whole lineup of dumbbells from five pounds to, I think this one, we were, we, were, we were pretty big guys. And so this one, I think, went all the way up to 200-pound dumbbells. And I said, you see those over there? And the guy looks. He said, yeah. And I said, here's the secret. Here's what you need to do. If you do this, I guarantee you you'll be successful. He said, okay, I'm listening. I said, you go over there. About five in the morning when the gym opens, you go over there. You find the heaviest set of dumbbells that you can pick up. You pick them up. 
and then you put them down. And when you're done with that, I want you to listen to this next part because it's kind of tricky. You're going to pick them up again, and then you're going to put them down. And then when you're done with that, you're going to pick them up, and you're going to put them down. And then you're going to pick them up, and you're going to put them down. And folks, are you starting to get the point? And he kind of looked at me like I was cheating him. And I said, bro, there's no bad, there, there's no easy answer here. That You're not looking at people who cheated. <laughs> You go over there and you pick those things up to the point of failure and then you drop them. And then the next time you pick up heavier ones and you keep doing that over and over and over again every single morning forever. That's success. Folks, that's not the society we live in. We are kicking every perceivable can as far as we can down the road, whether it's our own personal debt or the national debt or uh, consequences of our actions. We just don't want to deal with it. And that is a recipe for disaster, that love of pleasure. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Most people misquote that and say money is the root of all evil, but it's not. It's the love of it, the love of pleasure. It will result 100% of the time in complete and total, absolute, abject failure. And when it does, we will be without excuse. So three things that we learned from Romans chapter 1 and the first verse of Romans chapter 2 today. Number one, we are without excuse because we have not retained God by choice. Number two, we are without excuse because we have chosen our imaginations over his knowledge. And number three, we are without excuse because we have not gone, or excuse me, we have gone after pleasure, and rejected the truth. Now, there's two things I want you to take away from this. There's only two, and that's just the reality of it. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, you'll see the Bible says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's choice number one. Live by faith and the righteousness of God will be revealed to me. Choice number two is found in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So there's two forms of, of God revealing things to me. Number one, I can have righteousness revealed to me, or number two, I can have wrath revealed to me. It all depends on my obedience to the doctrine of the Word of God. If I choose to retain God in my knowledge, if I choose to uh, seek knowledge over imagination, and if I choose to seek truth over pleasure, the Bible says righteousness, not by works that we have done, but by God and his sacrifice or his giving of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That's where righteousness comes from. So I can have the righteousness of God revealed to me, or number two, I can have the wrath of God revealed to me. And when the wrath of God is revealed to me, because I did not retain God by choice, because I chose imagination over, over knowledge, and because I chose pleasure over truth, then when that happens, I'll be without excuse. I'm sure that we'll try to offer excuses, but the Bible says it doesn't really matter. We will be totally and completely without excuse. You say, what's the—I mean, so I get to the Lord, and I don't have an excuse— What's the result of that? What's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I don't want to get too far into that, but I want to show you one verse 
in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31. There's an incredible verse here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, the Bible says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When it all comes to an end, folks, and it'll, it'll come to an end, but, I mean, you, you understand that on a long enough timeline, it all ends. And when it does come to an end, we will deal with God. Or more appropriately put, God will deal with us. And he'll either deal with us by viewing us within the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, because I've accepted him as my personal Lord and Savior, and it's through his sacrifices that I can have a relationship with God, or I've rejected him. And then he'll deal with me through what the Bible says is wrath. Folks, my, my prayer for you, my prayer for Wasatch Front Baptist Church, Salt Lake City, or whatever church and city you're in, is that we live the Christian life in such a way that understanding no excuse will do, we repent, get to the end of ourselves sooner rather than later, and ask the Lord to forgive us and ask the Lord to do the rest and live the Christian life in a way that's victorious. Live the Christian life in a way that 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 exposes the truth instead of conceals it. Live the Christ the Christian life in such a victorious way that others are drawn to the cause of Christ and accept Him as their personal Lord and Savior, and the Lord gets the glory of it. There was a man that once told me, "The duty is ours; the results are His." Folks, we're going to be without excuse, so I might as well accept the fact that I have no excuses now, and do what the Lord tells me through the Word of God. Or, I'm sure that the Lord does love you and has given you a free will. You can choose to try the different way. You can seek pleasure, reject Him, and live by imagination. But according to the Bible, that won't get you very far. Folks, I love you. Thank you so much for listening today. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be done. Father, thank you for the message. Thank you for the time you've given us to be together. And as we go our separate ways, bring us back together, Father, and um, and and allow these truths to resonate, to sit in our hearts, to dwell in our minds and souls, and that we would give you the glory for it. We leave these things in your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen, folks. I'll talk to you soon.